0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we speak with Vasily Klementov, author of the new book, A Slow Reckoning, the USSR, the Afghan Communists, and Islam. Vasily Klementov is an SNSF postdoctoral fellow at the European University Institute in Florence, and a research associate at the Geneva Graduate Institute, the institution where he got his PhD in international history. We spoke to Vasily about how the Soviet Union's war in Afghanistan failed in large part due to the Soviets' disregard for Islam, how this miscalculation was fueled by communist ideology, and what parallel lessons the Soviet Union and the United States could have both learned from their occupations of Afghanistan. Hello, Vasily, Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about your new book from our Northern Illinois University Press imprint, A Slow Reckoning, The USSR, The Afghan Communists, and Islam. Tell us the backstory to this book. How did it come to be?
1: Okay. It, it came to be a bit in an odd way. I had a career before being an academic. I was a you mentioned worker. I was working in the Middle East um, on the Syrian crisis between 2013 and 2015 and before that I was working in other countries and um in Switzerland so and so I was there when Russia started bombing Syria in 2015 and uh, it, it was very much of um of an uh, unexpected event for a lot of the observers I was a needs and assessment officer in, in one of the the British NGOs but and so I always wanted to to maybe go back to academia, but this kind of event made me think about what would be the the history of that. Russia hadn't been involved in a war abroad for a very long time, and actually since the Soviet-Afghan war. And here again, it was at war with some type of Islamist opposition or Muslim Islamic opposition, whatever you you call it. And so initially, my idea was actually to look at the, I don't want to say the long durée, but I want to say the, the kind of the broader period going back from the 70s to the present of Russia's interactions with Islam and Islamism and how it came to be aware of that problem in Russia's view, and um, how it thought it could be an basically a threat to Russia, because if if people remember in 2015, the major justification for bombing Syria postulated by Russia was to fight uh, Islamists before they come to Russia, you could believe that entirely, or you could believe that to some extent, it, it doesn't matter. The question is, how how this kind of obsession with Islamism came to be and I wanted to start since I'm a historian by training I wanted to start at the origins and the origins were very much linked to the Soviet Afghan war and so that's how I came to I basically left my job as a intern. I started a PhD in Geneva and wanted to start with the Soviet Afghan war thinking this would actually become the first part of a longer study but it actually ended up being just
0: the study itself Nice, nice. Yes, your book's over 300 pages, a lot of information in this book. Very impressive. Part of the beginning of your research, you, you went to the archives in Moscow, and you mentioned this in the book that you found uh, the notes of one of the Soviet ambassadors to Afghanistan. And in his assessment of the Soviet-Afghan war, he believed Islam had been the main impediment to the Soviets in Afghanistan. Tell us more about how the Soviets' inability to deal with Islam in Afghanistan brought about their downfall.
1: All right. So yeah, this this document, I found it uh, very early on. And so at at the time, I was still fine to to go to Russia. It was um, basically from the period from 2016 to to 2020. And so it was one of the first documents I, I saw. It was at the State Archive of Social Political History. They had the notes of one Yegorichov, and Yegorichov was one of the last Soviet ambassadors to Afghanistan. He was there in 1988, so at the very end when the Soviets were already withdrawing, so they had actually come to terms with the idea that the war was over, that they had lost it, and that they would be leaving without having basically achieved much, that they would be leaving, the communist regime would somehow stay. But there was a lot of concern on the Soviet side, that actually, for like for the pro-American regime in Vietnam, it would fail, it would it will fall just after the withdrawal in 89. So a lot of the Soviets were talking at the time, but, okay, is it going to be like for the Americans in Saigon, but actually we leave and six months later, the communists are out. This is not what's going to happen, but still, this was the concern at the time. And so there was a lot of soul searching and introspection and discussions about like, well, how did things go so wrong? Because after 10 years, there was this understanding, but literally nothing has been achieved, but the, the territory held by the Soviet-communist Afghan forces was roughly the same as in '79 uh, when the Soviets arrived to Afghanistan, intervened in Afghanistan, and they were nowhere closer to building socialism. And so Yegorchev was very much making, uh, in his notes, basically, uh, a pros and cons. He had these two columns, and he was trying to figure out, much in the same way like anyone would do about any topic, of trying to put, well, what are the factors which played against the Soviets and what factors played uh, for the Soviets. And you would find a lot a lot of things which were quite, well, you would expect, basically. that yes, the Mujahideen, so the, the Soviets, the, the Islamic opposition fighting the Soviets and the Afghan communist forces had support from abroad. It had popular support. It was much more used to fighting in the Afghan mountainous terrain. It was uh, much more motivated, much more cohesive. It has a clear ideology. But interestingly, his first point was Islam. But he thought that the Soviets were never able to get the politics on Islam right. And this was a major reason, in his mind, probably the first reason he put explaining their downfall. And this was interesting and basically launched me into this idea of like, what should have happened for someone who who was a very much a staunch communist Nikolai Gorbachev. he was a, a former Moscow communist party boss. He, he was as hardline as it gets. He, he was one of the people in the hardline faction who was marginalized after there was a, a fight for Khrushchev succession, and he was in the hardline faction and eventually Brezhnev took over, but he was among the people who were actually more hardline than Brezhnev. So how does it come that someone as uh, convinced as him of the communist dogma for that actually the problem was with religion and this launched me to the project and this kind of led to the whole idea about the book of how the Soviets who came with very much ideology in hand, with the idea of building this socialist utopia, of going with heavy industrialization, land reform, the collectivization of agriculture, mass education, women's education notably, and also the idea that they will jumpstart Afghanistan from Quote unquote, the Middle Ages, basically, how they saw it, to some kind of Soviet style progress with these very much pre built houses with massive infrastructure projects, but also very much in terms of culture, as what the Soviet saw as cultural traditions, meaning that religion will be disappearing more or less slowly and uh, but it will become more and more as obsolete. To the afghan uh to the afghan man who would be interested in electrification and healthcare and running water and all these ideas of like how the soviets very much so progress very much a, a material progress and which would very much uh marginalize or, or render completely uninteresting for like local traditions and local religion and this didn't happen at all actually they found that Interest for this kind of progress and innovation was absolutely not as high as they thought, and that, on the contrary, the local context played a bigger role. The local religion was very strong, local traditions were very strong, and not being able to have a strategy to both integrate and actually adapt their communist playbook to the context was um, a major reason for their failure. So this is one of the stories that the, the book tells about how they started with their ideological approach and ended up very much withdrawing, but still when they were withdrawing, they were trying to have a much more kind of watered down version of communism for Afghanistan.
0: It's fascinating. It's just amazing to see, you know, ideology meets religion. And with the Marxist-Leninist view of religion being replaced by progressive communism and modernism, they thought that Islamism would be replaced and people would would go to communism. And clearly, as you stated, that (laughs) didn't happen. Only the KGB realized the threat that Islamism posed. Tell us how this ideological blindness impacted the Soviets' efforts.
1: So yeah, the, the story about the, the KGB is um, is quite interesting. So I, I wouldn't say that only the KGB realized it. It's it's actually partly true. So a funny thing was that um, the Soviets who came to Afghanistan to build socialism also had a very, and and, and this is very much counterintuitive, but they actually had a a very kind of distorted view of the Soviet Union itself. So people, policymakers from Moscow, most of them, actually believed that across the Soviet Union, um, there was a kind of uniformity. That, for example, Islam had more or less disappeared in Soviet Muslim regions. This wasn't the case at all. So in their minds, they had this blueprint of Soviet Central Asia, which is Muslim as a blueprint for Afghanistan, thinking that actually the, like the quote-unquote socialist order was very much similar in Central Asia as it was, for example, in Western, uh, in the Western Soviet Union. This wasn't the case at all. Actually, Islam had moved to the private sphere. In Central Asia, there's quite a bit of new research on that. It was so out of the public sphere, but it has very much remained strong. So it hadn't at all disappeared. And so there was a lot of mismatch as they discovered, but including in the Soviet Union, the situation was not... Um, as clear as it sounded. and But actually, the like region was not disappearing everywhere. And so the KGB was a bit more concerned about Islam and Islamism because it was tasked with monitoring Islamism and basically all anti-Soviet activities within the Soviet Union. But it was also very much mistaking because, because it had this obsession with the, the foreign hand. And so they had this concern with rising Islam and a possible contagion from Afghanistan into Soviet Central Asia. However, they always saw it through for a foreign hand. They never thought that this could be an appealing ideology for Soviet Muslims. They always thought that, well, the Iranians or the Americans or the Pakistani or the Afghan Muslims, someone had to be behind them in the Soviet Union trying to promote that. Short of that, there was no interest. And so the KGB was also very much um, misled about, about Islam and Islamism.
0: I think it's fascinating that mm-hmm. that their own assessment within the USSR, within Central Asia, that that islam had gone into the private sphere so hidden but they weren't able to see that that uh, they weren't able to see that they were blinded by the, their ideology so they thought that that central asian blueprint oh we can just bring that that progress in quotes to afghanistan and clearly that wasn't the case
1: yeah I mean, this is a fun story i talk about that a bit i, I it it comes that so the Soviet Union was both a very authoritarian country, but one where you actually had quite a, quite a level of decentralization in the sense that um, the people in charge of this Soviet republics of Central Asia were mostly local or like almost always local. So communists for sure, but Uzbek, Kyrgyz, Tajik, Kazakh, and so on. And so there was a strong interest for them to report to Moscow that, well, everything is fine. But Islam is disappearing, we're like very much on top of things. And so for a long time, that's how, and there's a lot of a huge story, which is also how they reported about cotton production, that it was increasing, increasing until a big scandal happened uh, when it happened, but it was absolutely not increasing. But it was also the same on Islam. They have been reporting for years that Islam had more or less disappeared until the late 80s, when actually everybody discovered that even party functionaries, were very much attending islamic burials in various islamic rituals and so on and that even they actually cultivated islam in the private sphere. They were just not talking about that much and everybody was very happy with this kind of I, I, I don't want but yeah I could you could say syncretism which had emerged between communism and islam, which was. Partly cultural, but also partly a way of traditionally organizing things in these regions and so these were not typically the people in Afghanistan. The people in Afghanistan were the the more like ethnically Russian people who thought that, well, Islam had disappeared in the Soviet Union since the the, the 30s more or less, and that they were now able to gradually see disappearing in Afghanistan. And this doesn't mean they were conducting atheism lectures in Afghanistan, for example, or this was part of that, but it was not that central. It was just they were basically disregarding religion as something not important. They were not, not paying much attention to it as any kind of factor. uh, And thinking, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's completely relevant, more or less. And so by treating it as completely relevant, they have ended up basically completely leaving Islam to the Mujahideen. And then we ended up thinking, well, that they had to hide somehow to also try to, to propose their own, let's say, Islamic communism, if so, Um, it was, it was too late. It was already the late 80s and the the war had been lost and the kind of any attempt at, let's say, winning hearts and minds, to use like an um, anachronic term, this was passed. There was maybe a window in from 1980 to 1982 to do something for the Soviets with the Afghan communists on having a bit of uh, building popular support in Afghanistan. After that period passed, the situation could not be salvaged.
0: So they realized too late. They realized too late. Mm -hmm absolutely yeah so winning hearts and minds you use that that term what what lessons could the u.s have made in their own war in afghanistan which clearly didn't work out as well either what are some lessons that they could have learned or and or were there any lessons that they did learn
1: it's a it's a good question i mean i think there are many many parallels as far as i as i know and as far as uh, i understand the u.s hadn't much interest in the soviet experience thinking that their kind of war would be very different. They developed more interest for the Soviet experience with time as they became, as well stuck in fighting in Afghanistan. And this idea of parallels is someone I, I thought quite a bit. It, it's, I think to, to kind of understand to which extent there is a repetition of mistakes is, is fascinating because you would think that the two wars are different and there are obviously quite a lot of difference. But the parallels and the parallels and the mistakes made by the two superpowers fighting in the same place are, are very much notable. And I, I will mention a few here because I, I, I had tried to, to kind of, again, not, not all of them. But I think the, the key idea is the United States, both like the Soviets, had this belief that they would impose their own development model on Afghanistan. And surely it's different from the communist model in some ways. But it's also this idea that they would come, they would offer this development model, they will promote it, including by force, and that people will support it because they want progress, because they want running water, because they want electrification, infrastructure, healthcare, education, and that just by building that, you will aggregate support from the Afghan population. And in that sense, like this kind of forceful modernization or rapid modernization idea, it's very similar between the two. And both times it hasn't worked, you could say, maybe it was obviously more heavy handed from the Soviets, but a lot of that infrastructure building uh, generators, all of that industrialization is is very similar and has failed both times. And both times, um, the forces which came had, and there was quite a lot of stories you, you could find about that in the book, about how, for example, the Soviets had no knowledge about the context they didn't really bother about starting Afghanistan in advance. And they actually even sidelined the people who knew about Afghanistan and Soviet Union. Because the, the idea was that, well, the communist playbook, in like the, the dogma, should work more or less the same way anywhere. This is the idea behind the, the communist thing, is that it's it's reproducible, you could have it here, you could do it in Afghanistan, you could do it anywhere. And so you don't really need to adapt anything to the context, to Islam, to just you come and you do it like, like Marx said. And so there was also this belief in, in the Western idea that democratization, but also this kind of progress. It should work. You don't have to do much context adaptation. And so you don't have to study Afghanistan, you don't have to really know about what, what ethnic groups are there, or the languages, or what the religion says, or what the question and the traditions are. You just come and you do infrastructure projects. And then you have a lot of other parallels. You have this idea that being so ideological and dogmatic, the Soviets never really tried to cope too much of the opposition in the beginning. This would come much, much later and you will think, okay, could we separate the people who are very much ideologically bent on fighting us from people who we could bring in some kind of coalition government with the Afghan communists. And there were opportunities early on which we didn't exploit. And then it was too late. The same for 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 the United States. A lot has been said about not being able to split the Taliban early on from the ones who maybe have been would have been amenable to talk with uh, a pro-US government from, for example, the Al-Qaeda and the radicalized groups who were absolutely bent on fighting until the end. You could think about the idea that being both quite ideological, you didn't have any kind of exit strategy. The Soviets didn't have any kind of benchmark of like what would look like the end of the Soviet project in Afghanistan. They came thinking it was for a few weeks, then before it was for a few months, and 10 years later, they were leaving much like the Soviets, the United States came without a clear idea of how long this commitment will last and it lasted for 20 years. And so this idea that when you don't have a real project or real state building project and you don't know what the the milestones are, uh, was very similar. The difficulty of managing their Afghan allies, that's that's a fascinating one and a very fun one. Um, The Soviets struggled in imposing any kind of discipline on the Soviet, on the Afghan communists of trying to reconcile, you had always fighting, you had always corruption, always a lot of problems. With the problem being that you could not easily change them. Uh, you are more or less stuck with your local allies and they actually have much more agency than was often thought in the literature before that. Because they know from time, they know the context much better. They know the local situation much better. They know actually what to say to Soviet allies to orient their activities in a certain direction. There is high turnover among the Soviets, so every time a new person comes, they're very much dependent on local, uh, on the local Afghan communists and so on. And you could not really replace the person in charge without making it look like a failure. And as I'm telling that story, obviously it resonates very strongly with, uh, with the American experience, where you had a similar situation, where you have a lot of turnover, where even you have very much disappointment with the, um, Amit Karzai at the time, how would you replace him or his ministers, whoever? you can't. And so we are stuck in that situation. Over time, the role of Pakistan has been much analyzed as well. It was obviously an enemy in Soviet times, but even if it was an ally of the United States during the war, it still was a sanctuary for the forces opposing um, the Americans. And so in that sense, this, this kind of the more for the military buffs, but this idea that, quote, unquote, sealing the border, it was very much central to military operations in both wars that you could not win in Afghanistan if you're unable to control the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan and in both wars they tried and they basically failed at finding a way because they never had enough troops to do that to prevent the movement across the borders of fighters for example that we could come go to sanctuaries replenish come back and so on and so this was also the problem so there are there are a lot of them and Maybe one one I will I will come to 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 at the end is also the one about Islam. Is that with disregard to Islam tradition context, it was also present in the in the American war. The Americans had not much idea about Islam, they didn't think about adapting anything, they didn't think about co Islam into the regime, assuming that it was not that important. And like the Soviets, they by default left the claim to Islamic legitimacy to their opposition. And the Mujahideen had it fighting the Soviets and the Taliban had it fighting the Americans, saying that they are actually Muslim warriors fighting foreign infidels who are here to uh, destroy Islam. And not being able to address that claim, that very central kind of dichotomy claim about the war was a major problem for the Americans. And they have tried, but it never kind of worked out. And so I'm I'm mentioning just a few here. I, I don't, I, there could be a lot more, but it, it's really fascinating how these wars resonate. There are obviously also differences, huh? Right. Um I think one of the the central ones, I, I will just end on, on that, is that unlike the for the Soviets, I mentioned that window in 8081. The window for the Americans was a bit clearer. For the Soviets, maybe there was a window, but when the Soviets came, to kind of prop a falling communist regime, a communist regime which was already very much struggling, which was present before the Soviet came, but which was struggling, they didn't have much popular support. They had some popular support in communist areas, but not much. And then they lost it very quickly as they started bombing Afghanistan. I think the honeymoon and kind of the, the popular support enjoyed by the, the US forces and the allied forces in Afghanistan was longer. But you actually had a year and a half, two years from 2001, maybe to 2003, when you had a lot of enthusiasm for the American project in Afghanistan, but you actually had a, a real possibility to uh, to turn things around after the Taliban's defeat and then you, you had popular support and maybe this is a, a major difference, but um, there was a bigger chance of, of success.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, those, those are amazing parallels and, and but I, I like that you come back to the point is that Islam was the, the deciding factor for both wars. In that, here are two of the world's largest armies at the time going against one of the poorest countries in the world, and these these invading armies spending billions of rubles or billions of, of dollars, but but not having any core mission and not having any understanding of the people on the ground. It's a tra- it's a tragedy ultimately. Uh, both endeavors.
1: So the book is about the Soviet-Afghan war, but it's it's also an important one to study if you are interested in any of the conflicts involving um Russia after the end of the Soviet Union. So we, we talked about the parallels between the Soviet-Afghan war and um, the U.S.-Afghan war, if, if you want to call it like that. But there's also quite a lot to say about the parallels between the Soviet-Afghan war and the wars in the Caucasus, in Chechnya in the 1990s, in Chechnya again in the 2000s, but also with the war between Russia and Ukraine right now. The way the invasion of Ukraine has happened bears many parallels with the ways the intervention of the invasion of Afghanistan has happened in, uh, in seventy nine, And so these kind of historical repetitions, it, it's good to be aware of them because it helps contextualize and it helps analyze. Because often people see every kind of event as completely unique and independent and having almost no, um, no context and no history. That's not so. Actually, when you when you look at the broader picture, you see this repetition of policymaking decisions, this kind of more um, heavy trends in terms of how foreign policy, for example, here of Russia slash the Soviet Union operates. And that's, so that's also interesting to to uh, to know.
0: That's a great point. Your book not only covers the Soviet Afghan war, but it basically offers a background to all the wars that came after that, all the way up to the Ukraine war. So anyone that wants to understand the historical background to the war in Ukraine, I would strongly recommend you read Vasily's new book, A Slow Reckoning, The USSR, The Afghan Communists, and Islam. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank
1: you much for interviewing me for the, for the podcast. I mean, it's a pleasure for my book to be out with Coroner's Press. And um, yeah, and hopefully many people will read it.
0: That was Vasily Klementov, author of the new book, A Slow Reckoning, the USSR, the Afghan communists, and Islam. If you'd like to read Vasily's new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK and want to save 30%, please use the discount code CSANUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.